السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respect to listeners We return for the Continuing commentary on the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an from Sahih al-Bukhari. The section where we left off last week is where Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an <coughs> explains how he received a letter wrapped in silk from the king of Ghassan, a letter inviting him to abandon the Prophet ﷺ, who had excommunicated him, and to leave Medina once and for all, and to travel to the north, to the realm of the Ghassan king, where he would be received with great honor and wealth would be showered on him and great privileges would be conferred upon him. This was an invitation which was highly political on the part of the king of Ghassan, who was Jabalat ibn al-Ayham. I explained all of this in great detail last week. Despite his loneliness, despite his isolation and the ostracism he faced from the whole community of Muslims in Medina, despite the displeasure of the Messenger ﷺ, and despite all the raging emotions in his heart, his tears, his despite all the thoughts crossing his mind, when he was given this letter and he read this invitation, any other person in such circumstances may have not hesitated. But Ka'bun Malik radiyallahu anhu instantly exclaimed, 
that by Allah, even this is a test also. And he displayed great faith, steadfastness, and resolve. And he actually took the letter and threw it into a furnace and burnt it. And rather than allowing himself to be burnt in the hereafter, by betraying the Messenger sallam, he burnt this letter of invitation. And as I said, this reminded me of the hadith which I quoted last week of both Bukhari and Muslim, in which from Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik in which the Prophet wasallam says, ثلاث من كن فيه وجد بهن حلاوة الإيمان. and this is a wording of Sahih Muslim. من كان الله ورسوله أحب إليه مما سواهما وأن يحب المرء لا يحبه إلا لله وأن يكره أن يعود في الكفر بعد أن أنقذه الله من كما يكره أن يقذف في النار أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم. Anas bin Malik radiyallahu anhu relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, There are three things which if found in a person, then through them he shall taste the sweetness of iman. One to whom Allah and his messenger are more beloved than all besides them. And that's a man loves another man. He loves him only for the sake of... That's a person, loves another person. And he loves him only for the sake of Allah. And that he dislikes. <clears throat> Returning to disbelief after Allah has delivered him and saved him from it. As much and as he dislikes and fears being flung into the fire. So Ka'b ibn Malik displayed this beautifully. Rather than as much he feared the he feared returning to disbelief, and he feared betraying the Messenger وسلم, as much as he feared the thought and resented the thought of being flung into the fire. So rather than allowing himself to be flung into the fire, he flung that letter of invitation and betrayal into the fire. Even though, imagine, his circumstances, his isolation, the ostracism that he faced, the host- well, the ostracism that he faced, despite all the emotions, all the thoughts, and despite this alluring, glittering invitation to pomp, wealth, glory, and grace by a king, and the invitation letter itself was wrapped in silk. Ka'bun Malik radiyallahu cast it into the fire. And th- these were the companions radiyallahu And I'll say one more thing before we continue with the hadith. In the... After the truce of Hudaybiyah, when... Abu Sufyan travelled north for trade. 
Heraclius, the Byzantine Roman emperor, he had come down from Constantinople, his capital, to Jerusalem. And whilst he was in Jerusalem, he had heard about the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Heraclius wasn't just a Roman emperor, he was also a man of scripture, and a man of learning, who knew about the history of the prophets, and who knew much of his scriptures. And he was actually in communication and consultation with a number of Christian scholars. And he was very keen to learn about this new messenger. So he summoned, he sent his men and told them, go and find any of the Arabs who have come from Arabia in our land. Are there any? So he he was informed that there is a caravan of traders who at that time were actually in Gaza, in Gaza. So he said, bring them here. So his men went and they commanded Abu Sufyan along with his companions of the caravan to come to Jerusalem. There they met in the palace. And Abu Sufyan was questioned by Heraclius. And this is a famous hadith of Bukhari at the beginning. So what Heraclius did is that he asked Abu Sufyan about the Prophet ﷺ. And the reason for asking Abu Sufyan was, not only because he was a leader of the group, but more importantly, he asked that who amongst you is the closest in lineage and in relations to this Prophet, Muhammad ibn Abdullah ﷺ. So Abu Sufyan said, I am. So he asked him a number of questions, and Abu Sufyan replied to them. Abu Sufyan at that time was a non-Muslim, he was a non-believer, and he was unable to lie. So, when he completed answering the questions, Heraclius then went through each of the questions and Abu Sufyan's answers, and he explained them. And part of the reason for explaining them His questions were very focused. And what Heraclius was attempting to determine is whether the Prophet ﷺ is a true messenger in the tradition of the earlier prophets. And since he was a man of scripture, he knew all about it. I won't explain the rest of the hadith, it's a very long hadith, but having provided this introduction, what I wish to say now is, one of the questions Abu Sufyan was asked by Heraclius is, Heraclius said to him, are the numbers of his followers increasing or decreasing? So Abu Sufyan said, no, they are increasing. He then asked him, do any of his followers abandon his faith? After having embraced it, sahtatan lidin, out of displeasure and anger at the faith. So Abu Sufyan said no. So later when Heraclius 
was reviewing his questions and Abu Sufyan's answers and commenting on them, Heraclius said to him, And I asked you whether any of his followers abandon him and leave his faith out of displeasure after having embraced it. And you said no. Then Heraclius provided his commentary and he said, وَكَذَلِكَ الْإِيمَانِ حِينَ خَالَطَ بَشَاشَةَ الْقُلُوبِ And this is the affair of faith when it mingles and merges with the delight of the heart. Abu Sufyan, Heraclius knew from his study and knowledge of the earlier scriptures and the traditions of the, uh, of the former prophets and their disciples that the true messengers were such that those around them recognized them for who they were. And having embraced, they would not abandon their faith out of displeasure. And the way he explained this is in, his, in these very beautiful words, that وَكَذَلِكَ الْإِيمَانَ حِينَ خَالَطَ بَشَاشَةَ الْقُلُوبَ These are the words of the Hadith in Bukhari. That, and indeed, this is faith. Such is faith. When faith, when iman, mixes, mingles and merges with the delight of the heart. And when you consider this, this is exactly how Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu anhu was. His iman was of such a state, was of such strength, that it had embedded itself in his heart. His delight was in his faith. His joy was in his faith. Every element, every particle of his soul, of his being, was mixed, mingled and merged with the delight of faith. And that's why in the earlier hadith as well, from Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, when these three things are found in a person, he or she will taste the sweetness of iman. And Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu despite his circumstances, he had the taste of the sweetness of Iman forever in his heart and mind. And that's why it was so simple for him to read the letter wrapped in silk and immediately exclaim, this is a test too, and fling it into the fire. <coughs> Let's continue. He says, So I headed for the fire, for the furnace, with the letter, and I burnt it. And I burnt it. This also explains to us that people often ask this question, is it permissible to burn something in which the name of Allah is mentioned? Verses of the Qur'an or the Hadith, etc. So in this letter, the king, being an Arab, he was an Arab king, he spoke about Allah. So Allah's name was mentioned. And Ya'qab ibn Malik radiyallahu burnt it. So it is permissible. If there's a genuine need, it is permissible to burn anything, paper as such, with the name of Allah. And this question arises... When people have pages of the Qur'an, loose pages, or 
portions of pages in which there are Quranic verses, hadith, and name of Allah is taken therein, is mentioned. What should a person do? Well, the simple ruling is that ulama explain that these such artifacts or paper, etc., in which Allah's name is mentioned, they should be returned to the elements. So either you bury them, or if you can, allow them to be dropped into the sea or the ocean, or if they can be washed away with water, then even that's permissible. And the other option is to burn them. There's no sign of disrespect. Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan and burnt the remaining copies of the Musahif when he ordered uh, the collection of the Qur'an. So it is permissible if there's a genuine need, just as Ka'b ibn Malik did here. However, the ulama do say that there is a difference between normal pages in which the name of Allah is mentioned and actual pages from other books and actual pages from the Holy Qur'an. As far as the pages of the Qur'an are concerned, there, of course, it's still permissible, but greater care should be exercised with the pages of the Holy Qur'an itself. And the ideal situation would be to actually bury them. To return them to the elements. حَتَّى إِذَا مَضَتْ أَرْبَعُونَ لَيْلَةً مِّنَ الْخَمْسِينَ Ka'b al-Malik continues and says, until when? 40 of the 50 nights. He says 50 because it later emerged that his whole ordeal lasted 50 days. So he, and remember, he's speaking of this retrospectively. So he says, when 40, until when 40 of the 50 days had passed, إِذَا رَسُولُ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يَأْتِينِ When all of a sudden, the messenger of the messenger, صلى الله عليه وسلم, came to me. فقال, and he said, إِنَّ رَسُولُ The messenger of the messenger, صلى الله عليه وسلم, the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم, sent a messenger to deliver this message to Ka'b ibn Malik رضي الله عنه. What did he say? فقال, so he said, إِنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يَأْمُرُكَ Verily, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is commanding you that you separate from your wife. فقلت, so I said to him, أُطَلِّقُهَا أَمَّاذَا أَفْعَلْ Should I divorce her? Or what should I do? قال, he replied, لا, no. Rather, separate from her. ولا تقربها, and do not, conclude, do not approach her. وأرسل إلى صاحبي مثل ذلك. And the Messenger وسلم, sent word similarly. To my two companions, who were Muratu ibn Rabi' and Hilal ibn Umayyah radiyallahu anhuma. فقلت لمرأتي, so I said to my wife, الحقي بأهلك, join your family. 
فَتَكُونِي عِنْدَهُمْ So you shall remain by them حَتَّى يَقْضِيَ فِي حَتَّى يَقْضِيَ فِي هَذَا الْأَمْرِ It should actually be حَتَّى يَقْضِيَ اللَّهُ فِي هَذَا الْأَمْرِ Until Allah decides or until He meaning Allah or the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam until He decides in this affair. Subhanallah. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam truth is, no matter how much I say, I can't portray the emotions and the feelings and the state of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu. All these conditions. If you look at his history, he had believed in the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam even before the hijrah. He had defended him, fought with him, stood side by side with him, bled with him, sustained injuries with him in the battlefield. He had made great sacrifices. Ka'bun Malik radiyallahu All these years. And just because on one occasion, in the ninth year of Hijrah, after so many years of selfless, dedicated, devoted service, he failed to join the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam on one journey. And he wasn't defiant about it. He acknowledged his mistake. He was sincere in his repentance. He presented himself to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He threw up his hands, figuratively speaking. And he said, I am wrong. <clears throat> I repent. I am sincerely sorry. I apologize. I have no excuse. Others got away with their lives. And he spoke the truth. And yet, his apology wasn't accepted. His repentance wasn't accepted. And he was shunned, excommunicated. He roamed the marketplace. Nobody would speak to him. Nobody would reply to him. Nobody would greet him. When he would greet people, nobody would return his salah. His best friend... Abu Qatadah refused to speak to him. He would go to the masjid and greet the Messenger وسلم, The Prophet وسلم, wouldn't reply to him. And he had to strain and steal glances to see whether the lips of the Messenger وسلم, moved or not. Imagine his condition. Imagine the pressure he was under. And then he was invited by the king of Ghassan and he repudiated that invitation and rejected it. And now, after 40 days of such torturous living, he now receives an instruction, not by the messenger wasallam himself, but by a messenger of the messenger. And the message is, separate from your wife. Allahu Akbar. In this day and age, I personally know of many cases where there is a disagreement, just a disagreement between the wife and the in-laws. 
And as a result of this disagreement, the husband renounces his mother, renounces his whole family. Great bitterness arises between the son and his siblings and his parents. I know of a number of cases where not the brothers or the sisters, but where the father, and not even the mother, but where the father has said to the son that maybe it's better if you go your separate ways. And it's not a command, it's not an instruction, but it's merely a suggestion. Having witnessed the difficulties that the two are facing. And merely because of this suggestion, the son renounces the father. And disassociates himself. Subhanallah. Here, despite this ostracism, this excommunication, all this pressure and this shunning... He now receives a message saying, separate from your wife. So his question is, Should I divorce her or what should I do? Even in there he sought clarity. So the messenger said, No, you just separate from her but do not, and do not approach her. So what did he do? Become angry, rage, Release a torrent of abuse and vitriol. No. He says, So I said to my wife, Join your family. So you shall remain by them. Until Allah decides in this affair. And the wording here is, Until he decides in this affair. Allahu Akbar. What faith? As I said, even Heraclius recognized it. وَكَذَلِكَ الْإِيمَانِ حِينَ تُخَالِطْ And in one narration, وَكَذَلِكَ الْإِيمَانِ حِينَ خَالِطْ خَالِطَ بَشَاشَةَ الْقُلُوبِ And such is Iman when it mingles with the delights of the hearts. قَالَ كَعْبْ سُكَعْبْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ said, so the wife of Hilal ibn Umayyah came. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so she said, Ya Rasulullah, O messenger of Allah, in Hilal ibn Umayyah, indeed Hilal ibn Umayyah, shaykhun da'i' is a perishing old man. Laysa lahu khadim. He has no Servant, no attendant. So do you disapprove of me serving him and waiting on him? So the Prophet said now. Hilal ibn Umayyah was one of the other three. Muradat ibn al-Rabi' was the other companion. Hilal ibn Umayyah radiyallahu anhu was the third companion. Along with Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu. And as he said before, أَمَّا أَنَا فَكُنْتُ أَشَبَّ الْقَوْمِ وَأَجْلَدَهُمْ As for I, well as for me, I was the youngest of the group. So he was young. But Hilal ibn Umayyah radiyallahu anhu was old. So his wife came to plead with the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and she said to him, 
so the understanding was that they would remain separate and not remain together as a husband and wife per se, but because he is old, very old, and he has no one to look after him, wait on him, to serve him. So a messenger of Allah, I will not live like a wife with him, but do you allow me and do you disapprove of me at least just serving him? So the Prophet ﷺ said no, and he adds here, قَالَ لَا He said no, وَلَكِنْ لَا يَقْرَبْكَ But he should not come close to you. قَالَتْ Her reply was, Allahu Akbar. The Prophet ﷺ said, yes, you can serve him. Oh, he said, I don't disapprove of you serving him, but he should not come near you. قَالَتْ She replied by saying, إِنَّهُ وَاللَّهِ مَا بِهِ حَرَكَةٌ إِلَى شَيْءٍ He by Allah has no inclination to anything. وَاللَّهِ مَا زَالَ يَبْكِي مُنذُ كَانَ مِنْ أَمْرِهِ مَا كَانَ إِلَى يَوْمِهِ هَذَا By Allah from the moment of his affair. From the moment that that occurred of his affair, that did occur, till this day, by Allah, he has remained weeping. Forty days and forty nights, he has remained weeping. He has no such inclination or messenger of Allah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ka'bun Malik radiyallahu an continues, فَقَالَ لِي بَعْضُ أَهْلِي so, one of my family said to me, لَوِ اسْتَأْذِنْتَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فِي مْرَأَتِكَ If you would seek the, seek the permission of the Messenger of Allah about your wife, كَمَا أَذْنَ لِمْرَأَةِ هِلَالِ بْنِ أُمَيَّةِ Just as he granted permission, for the wife, or to the wife of Hilal ibn Umayyah, and takhdumah, that she may serve him. فقلت, so I said, وَاللَّهِ لَا أَسْتَأْذِنُ فِيهَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ By Allah, I will not seek permission about her from the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم. وَمَا يُدْرِينِ And what do I know? ما يقول رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا استأذنته what the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم will say if I seek permission from him فيها أبعتها وأنا رجل شاب when I'm a young man so he says that after Hilal ibn Umayyah رضي الله عنه's wife had sought permission from the messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم to remain with him, not as a wife, but merely to attend to him, to wait on him, and to serve him. And she was granted permission. He says, one of my family said to me, if only you would do the same. An interesting question here is, if Ka'ab ibn Malik had been excommunicated, and no one would speak to him, they wouldn't reply to his salam or greet him, but here, he says himself that one of my family spoke to me. So, the simple answer is, it seems as though the 
an exception was made for talking at least and for just conversation with the immediate members of the household. So no one else but only the immediate family and members of the household who lived with them all the time. But no one else, not even relatives. But Ka'b ibn Malik anhu said that Hilal ibn Umiyyah he's in need. He's an old man. And I won't even dare to approach the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. What will he say? I'm a young man. Meaning, I have no need for someone to wait on me and attend to my needs and serve me. He continues, So after this, I remained in the same state for a further ten nights. Until a whole 50 days had been completed for us. From the time that Allah's Messenger had prohibited any conversation with us. SubhanAllah, 50 days, 50 nights. Imagine 50 whole days and nights. A person roams. Ka'b ibn Malik would go everywhere. Hilal ibn Umayyah and Murad ibn Rabi' had remained secluded at home. They had hid themselves, lay low, and continued to weep. Ka'b ibn Malik, being the youngest and the sturdiest and the most resilient and bold, he would roam the marketplace, frequent the masjid, but still no one would speak to him. And this condition remained for 50 days and 50 nights. فَلَمَّا صَلَّيْتُ صَلَاةَ الْفَجْرِ Then when I prayed Fajr prayer, سُبْحِ خَمْسِينَ لَيْلَةً On the morning of the 50th night, meaning the 51st night, Sorry, the meaning at the end of the 50th night, so Salat al-Fajr was just before the sunrise of the 51st day. And I was on the roof of one of our homes. So whilst I was seated in that state which Allah exalted as He has mentioned, And what did Allah mention? nafsi, That my soul had become restricted for me. And the vast earth had become narrow and restricted for me despite its vastness. What did Allah say? وَعَلَى الثَّلَاثَةِ الَّذِينَ خُلِّفُمْ حَتَّى إِذَا ضَاقَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ الْأَرْضُ بِمَا رَحُبَتْ وَضَاقَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ أَنفُسُهُمْ وَظَنُّوا أَلَّا مَلْجَأَ مِنَ اللَّهِ إِلَّا إِلَيْهِ And Allah relented to those three whose affair had been deferred until the, earth, the land had become narrow for them. Despite its vastness, 
and their souls had become restricted for them. And they became convinced that there is no refuge from Allah except unto Allah. That was Allah, that was what Allah mentioned. So he said, in that state that Allah the Exalted mentioned. Now I'd like to say something here. Ka'ab ibn Malik radiyallahu was a man of letters. A bold, courageous, valiant poet. A man whose words were weapons in themselves. A man because of whose poetry the whole tribe or most of the tribe of those embraced Islam. A man whose words of poetry turned hearts and strengthened them and changed minds, even in the morning of battle. Gabriel Nomadic was a brilliant, eloquent, articulate poet. And the Arabs were masters of poetry, eloquent, eloquent poetry. Impromptu, spontaneous, rhythm and rhyme, measure and temp. And yet here, Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu says, فَبَيْنَمَا أَنَا جَالِسٌ Whilst I was seated, in that condition, which condition, Ka'b ibn Malik says, even I, with all my words, and poetry and eloquence cannot describe it. All I will say is that after 50 days and 50 nights, whilst I was seated in that condition which Allah has described. Now we may think, what's so special about the words of Allah here? But it takes an artist to appreciate art. To a donkey, gold and lead are the same. So if we fail to appreciate the beauty and the majesty and the eloquence of the Arabic language in the Qur'an, then is that in any way a criticism or a detraction of the Qur'an itself? Here is Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, a master of his art of poetry, and a master of both prose and poetry. And he says, this condition, my entire condition which I struggle to re- relay and convey to you, in all these words, Allah has mentioned it in just two, three sentences. So he says, whilst I was seated on that, in that state that Allah exalted as he has mentioned, that my soul had become restricted for me, and the earth, despite its vastness, had become restricted for me. And subhanAllah, 50 days and 50 nights. And what did they do? They failed to join the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on one journey. Imam al-Hassan al-Basri rahmatullahi alayhi. And he was a great tabi'i. He was another man of great eloquence. 
And another was Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. There's a speech by Hajjaj ibn Yusuf which is very famous. In fact, not just one. If you read Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's speeches, it's like fire and brimstone, thunder and lightning. And he was so eloquent that he was, in, he was appointed as a governor of Kufa, which was a very rebellious, turbulent city. They even got rid of Sa'd ibn Abu Abi Waqqas radiyallahu anhu. And Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab was compelled to bring him back. It's a very turbulent city. Very rebellious. So the Banu Umayyah sent Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. So the first time he arrived there, he had disguised himself. And he went and ascended the mimbar. And they were shouting and screaming in the jami' of Gufa. And there was great din and clamor. And all he did was, he went to the front, ascended the mimbar. It was a huge masjid. Ascended the mimbar and sat down. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. And when he sat down on the mimbar, he did not utter a single word. He just sat there with his sword. And he waited for all the noise to die down because people were intrigued. Who's this person who's come and sat on the mimbar who's disguised himself? Only his eyes were visible. He was mutalathim. So they were intrigued. And they were also intrigued by the fact that he doesn't say anything. Then he removed the face cover. Because the Arabs, when they would ride, that's how they would cover themselves. And then he stood up, leaning on his sword. And he started speaking. His words had such an effect that by the end of his speech, members of the congregation were trembling. And one person says that Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was so eloquent, so eloquent, that he would ascend the mimbar and he was a governor appointed by a hostile government, the Banu Umayyah, over a rebellious city. They all hated him. And they hated his overseers, his overlords. They hated their own rulers. And they hated him. And he was such a tyrant. He was so eloquent that in one speech, this the, the narrator says... He would address us and he would tell us about how great, noble and kind and forbearing and forgiving he is. And how rebellious, how disobedient and how terrible we were. And not one person but the entire congregation of the whole Jami' of Kufa, which was, which was, till not too long ago, the capital of the whole of the Islamic realm. So it was a huge city, huge congregation in the central Jami'a Masjid. And he says, by the end of his speech, by Allah, we would all believe him about us and we would belie ourselves. That's how eloquent he was. So, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was a contemporary of Imam al-Hassan al-Basri, rahmatullahi alayhi. 
They were both very eloquent, Imam al-Hassan al-Basri and Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. <coughs> so someone asked that, one of the scholars asked another, of those times, who of the two is more eloquent? Al-Hajjaj or Al-Hassan al-Basri? So he said Al-Hassan al-Basri. And one of the reasons, Wallahu alam, but one of the reasons given is that Al-Hassan al-Basri, rahmatullahi mother, was a maid in the service of Umm al-Mu'mineen, Umm al-Salamah, radiyallahu anha. So whilst she was one day busy in the household chores and works, work, she left the house. And Al-Hassan al-Basri, who was a baby, he was weeping uncontrollably. So it's said that Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha picked him up, and to quieten him, she gave him her breast. So the ulama say that Al-Hassan al-Basri's wisdom and eloquence derived from this barakah of Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha, one of the noble wives of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So Imam al-Hassan al-Basri rahmatullahi alayhi says, commenting on this hadith, when he would relate this hadith, he says, Ya subhanallah, glorified be Allah. These three, they did not appropriate any haram wealth nor did they shed any haram blood. Nor did they spread corruption upon the earth. And yet, see how Allah tested them in their repentance. So what can be said of those who openly commit lewd and major sins? They failed to join the Messenger ﷺ on one journey. And this is how Allah tested them. So Imam al-Hassan al-Basri rahmatullahi says, Ya subhanallah, they did not steal any haram wealth, they did not shed any haram blood. Nor did they spread strife and corruption upon the earth. And yet Allah tested them in this manner, that the earth became narrow and restricted for them, their souls became narrow and restricted for them. So what of those who openly and continuously commit to sin, commit, continue to commit major sins and lewd and indecencies. So he says, whilst I was in this state, sitting on that house after Fajr Salah, on the morning of the 50th night, Sami'tu sawta sarikhin, I heard the, the voice of a caller, of someone shouting, Awfa ala Jabal al-Sala' who had appeared on Mount Sala' Bi'a'la sawtih he shouted at the top of his voice. Mount Sala' is a very small mountain, it's almost like a hillock, or well, a hill. Very close to Medina. Well, it's actually part of Medina now. And even then it wasn't too far. Unlike Uhud, which was at some distance, Salah was much closer. And it's not a very large, tall mountain. It's more like a hill. So, Ka'b ibn Malik had also erected a tent there. So he wouldn't go home even. He erected a tent there. And he would stay, uh, he would spend his days in the tent 
during this 50 day period, but you still come to the masjid. So Ka'bu Malik says that on this occasion, I was seated in one of the homes when I, there was, a, there was someone who climbed up Mount Salah. And he appeared at the top and he shouted at the top of his voice. What did he say? Ya Ka'bu ibn Malik, O Ka'bu ibn Malik, Abshir, receive the glad tidings. Qal, he says, فَخَرَرْتُ سَاجِدًا So I fell down in prostration. And in another narration of the same hadith, I fell down into prostration and I began weeping out of joy. وَعَرَفْتُ أَنْ قَدْ جَاءَ And I realized that deliverance had come. وَآذَنَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ بِتَوْبَةِ اللَّهِ عَلَيْنَا And Allah's Messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم had announced Allah's accepting of our repentance and His relenting to us. حِينَ صَلَّى صَلَاةَ الْفَجْرِ When He had prayed the morning prayer. So it's obvious that Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu on this occasion he hadn't prayed salah in Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam but elsewhere. So when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam announced that he had just finished his salah and as soon as people heard the <coughs> glad tidings they rushed out to look for him. In fact, <coughs> in another narration Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu says that the Prophet wasallam at that night, on that night, was by Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha, the same Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha. And he says that Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha was very concerned about my affair, and she would always inquire of me. So the Prophet wasallam was with her when he received Allah's revelation. So... Umm Salama, he informed Umm Salama radiyallahu anha. So Umm Salama radiyallahu anha said to him, O Messenger of Allah, should I not go and give Ga'ad the glad tidings? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, no, just wait, this was towards the end of the night. So he said, if you do that, there will be great noise and confusion, So and pe- there will be throngs of people here, so wait till Fajr. And then the Prophet ﷺ announced it in Fajr Salah. So, someone climbed Mount Salah, who he probably knew that Ka'b ibn Malik had a tent pitched at the, uh, at the foot of Mount Salah or on Mount Salah. But he wasn't there, he was on another house. So he shouted, Ya Ka'b ibn Malik, Abshir, O Ka'b ibn Malik, receive the glad tidings. So he says, I fell down into prostration. And I realized that deliverance had come and the Prophet ﷺ had announced Allah's relenting to us and his accepting our repentance when he prayed Salat al-Fajr. Question here. This is known as sujood al-shukr or sujood al-shukr. The prostration of gratitude. So,
what should a person do if they receive such glad tidings and they want to thank Allah? Well, surprisingly, Imam Malik, rahmatullahi and Imam Malik, rahmatullahi considers sajdat al-shukr to be makruh. He says prostration of gratitude is disapproved. And it's not, he actually says it's makruh karahat al-tahreem. So it's strongly disapproved. And Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he also said it's makruh. But karahat al-tanzeeh, he says it's disapproved, but lightly. However, Imam Abu Hanifa's two students and co-imams, Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad, rahimahumullah, they both say that it's permissible. And it's also a virtue in itself. And Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahimahumullah, they both say that it's indeed virtuous and one sh- well, they say it's virtuous. So we have a wide range of opinion here. Imam Abu Hanifa says it's makruh, but light, uh, lightly disapproved. Imam Malik rahmatullahi says strongly disapproved. And yet the later ulama say it's... Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad say it's permissible and it's a virtue. And so do Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And the fatwa according to the Hanafi fiqh is on the verdict of Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad, not Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. There's a lot that can be discussed about this, but we don't have time. But um, lest someone says that, well, why, do Imam Abu, why does Imam Abu Hanifa say it's makruh? Well, he only says it's makruh karahat at meaning it's lightly disapproved. Imam Malik actually goes to the extent of saying that it's makruh strongly disapproved of. So why then? Why? Well, Imam Malik rahmatullahi says, see, I keep on saying that um, the ulama rahimahumullah, they weren't Obsessed with their opinions. But they, in, and they weren't defiant of the truth. They based their opinions on the sound evidences available to them. Now Imam Malik, he actually said that I don't view the permissibility of the virtuous nature of frustrations of Gratitude. Because the ulama and the people of Medina do not practice it. And I have never heard of it. Of course, in one or two incidents like this, yes. But he said, we have no tradition of this. This is why Imam Malik, rahmatullah, said no. And the ulama were very strict. So much so that Imam, Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, 
Some of you have commented to me that you miss the technicality of the التَّجْرِيدُ السَّرِيحِ درس Bukhari درس Well, I'll delight you for two minutes then. <laughs> Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi alayhimah They both say that, it, uh, yes, prostration of gratitude is permissible and it's good. And so do Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad of the Hanafi fiqh. But do you know Imam Abu Yu, Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, they stipulate all the conditions. So they say you have to face qibla. All the conditions of salah, of the concealment and the covering of the body must apply. Of purity must apply, so you must be in a state of wudu and tahara. And you must face the qibla. And only then can you do it. And the method of doing it is takbir Allahu Akbar and you fall into prostration. Uh, you say the tasbih and then you say the takbir and you rise again similar to sajdatut tilawah. The prostration of recitation. The, the, the Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad of the Hanafi school of fiqh, they don't have such restrictions. But Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad al-Hanbal do. But the point I'm trying to make here, that the ulama don't just come up with opinions for the sake of it. And unfortunately, this is something that Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, especially accused of. The ulama did things, said things for reasons. Now, let me give you an example of Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad al-Hanbal. They say sajdat al-shukr is good. Yes? But they say you can't do sajdat al-shukr in salah. Understandable. So much so that in, sajdat, in, in, in the Qur'an, in Surah Sa'd, there is a sajdah. In, in Surah Sa'd. In the story of Sayyidina Dawood alayhi salam. According to Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah and the ulama of the Hanafi school of fiqh, that's a proper sajda. According to Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, that is not a prostration of dilawah, of recitation. They say it's sajda to shukr. It's a prostration of gratitude. They say it's prostration of gratitude. And they have their reasons for saying that also. Because it's narrated in one hadith of the Prophet ﷺ said, Dawood he prostrated out of repentance, and we prostrate here in gratitude. So they say this is not a prostration of recitation, it's a prostration of gratitude. So if in salah, someone reads this verse, and then he does... He actually, well, he does sajda, he falls into prostration. Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal say, his salah is broken. His salah is batil. So he has to resume, begin his salah entirely again. If he did it intentionally, and if he did, if, as long as he uh, didn't do it out of ignorance or forgetfulness. So the point I'm making, the discussion here isn't about salah, the point I'm making is that ulama have their reasons for saying what they do. What reason does Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah have? He says that one complete rak'ah of salah is a complete rak'ah, one cycle. But anything 
less than one cycle of salah is not considered a virtue. So a ruku' in itself is not considered a virtue by itself. If someone just out of the blue did ruku' and bowed to Allah, that is not considered an act of virtue. If someone suddenly stood in the middle of somewhere and fastened his hands and did some tilawah of the Qur'an, that in itself, the tilawah is a virtue. But that form and posture that the person adopted with recitation in that manner is not a virtue. This is what Imam Hanifa rahimahullah says. Anything less than a complete rak'ah is not considered a virtue. And similarly he says, a prostration by itself, like a ruku' or a bowing by itself in isolation, is not considered a virtue. And he says, anything less than a rak'ah is not considered a virtue. He only makes an exception in the case of sajdatu tilawa, the prostration of recitation, because we have clear categorical evidences and texts for that. He says there are no such texts with, of such a categorical nature for sajdatul shukr, for prostration of gratitude. And Imam, if someone says, well, how can there be? We have evidence. Yes, but these are single narrations. Imam Malik said the same, rahimahullah. He said, no one practices it in the whole of Medina. And he based his verdicts on the on the practice and the verdicts of the people of Medina, who had taken it from the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And he actually went to the extent of saying that so many good things happened, so many glad tidings were received, and yet we, don't ha- we haven't received such reports of, of the uh, prostration of gratitude. So someone may ask, well, what about Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu? And yes, indeed. But the, the explanation given by Imam Malik and Imam Abu Hanifa or others like them, although they never said this, but the explanation would be along the lines of the prostration of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu was spontaneous. After 50 days and nights of such grief, he, when he received the glad tidings of Allah accepting his repentance and relenting to him and forgiving him, he spontaneously, involuntarily, he just, out of sheer joy, he fell down into sujood, and he wept, and so did the others. In any case, uh, like I said, those of you who are missing the technicalities, that's for your benefit, but I'll return to the hadith. But according to the Hanafi fiqh, and interestingly, the later Maliki ulama agreed with the others. So, the, the followers, the scholars of the Maliki school of fiqh in this masala actually digress from the opinion of Imam Malik and the followers of the Hanafi fiqh also digress from the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. So in the Maliki fiqh and in the, Sha, in, the, in the Maliki fiqh and in the Hanafi fiqh and in the Shafi'i fiqh and in the Hanbali fiqh, so according to all four schools, it's permissible to do sujood. However, do remember that according to Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, all the conditions apply. Tahara, you must face the qibla. So it's like part of salah. But there, there are no such conditions for the Hanafi school of fiqh. So if someone just prostrated, uh, then it's considered uh, a kind of virtue in itself. So he says, when the Prophet wasallam announced... <coughs> 
this in Salat al-Fajr. So people went out to give us the glad tidings. And bearers of glad tidings went to my two companions. And a man raced his horse towards me. And someone from the clan of Aslam, his clan, someone from the clan of Aslam raced. So he climbed onto the mountain. And the sound was faster than the horse. So what Gawain Malik is saying is that as soon as the Prophet ﷺ announced Allah's repentance, there was a flurry of activity. People went out from the masjid to search for Ka'b ibn Malik, Murarat ibn Rabi, Hilal ibn Umayyah. Someone went to Mount Salah. Another person climbed his horse and raced, to, uh, raced in a direction to find him. Another person climbed on another mountain on the hilltop and he shouted, uh, he, he, he shouted out to Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu anhu. So here was a horse coming, a horse rider speeding towards him. There there was someone climbing a mountain who suddenly appeared and shouted. So he says, the sound of the person appearing on the hilltop was faster than the horse racing towards me. Then the one who ascended the hilltop, after shouting from there, he came to Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu an later. And he says, because he was from his tribe, So when that person came, whose voice I had heard, the first one to greet him, giving me glad tidings, I removed my two pieces of cloth. He was wearing two pieces of cloth. He said, I removed my two pieces of cloth. And I made him wear them because of his glad tiding which he bore for me. By Allah, I did not own any other shirts or any other pieces of clothing apart from those two pieces of cloth on that day. Although he says... I did not own anything besides them. It doesn't mean he didn't own anything. If you remember, he said at the beginning of the hadith, never was I wealthier and healthier than I was. And I had two uh, uh, means of transport. But in one narration, it's clearly mentioned that what he means is, I did not have any other items of clothing. He had only two pieces of clothing. But in his joy... Uh, the upper pieces of clothing, obviously he retained the lower cloth, but he had two upper pieces of clothing, which he removed both and gave them to uh, this Sahabi radiallahu anhu who had come to give him the glad tidings. And why? Because he gave him glad tidings. And he says, by Allah, I did not own anything else. I'll continue next week because there's quite a bit of the hadith left. We're nearing the end now. But if I continue, we'll be here till very late. But I'll stop here. But I'll just, I'll just end with, one, uh, with uh, one or two comments about this. It was always the practice. So what did he do? He gave the two pieces of cloth. 
and then he borrowed someone else's clothes. And then he went to visit Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So what happened when he went to meet the Messenger of Allah will continue next week, inshallah. Next week will be the final dars of Ka'ab ibn Malik radiallahu anhu's hadith. But it was always, it's always remained the custom of ulama throughout the centuries and the people of knowledge to, and it's considered good to give someone a gift if they bring you good news. And that's what he did. So the person who brought him good news, Ka'bun Malik radiyallahu took the only two pieces of cloth he owned on that day and gave them to him. And he actually wore them. The other Sahabi radiyallahu put them on. And it was considered an honor. It was considered an honor. Like one Sahabi radiyallahu he came. So one could ask that, well, if... Ka'bu ibn Malik didn't have any of the pieces of cloth. And he had two upper pieces of cloth and he removed them and gave them to the Sahabi. Why did he take them? He could have said, no, 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 you know, you need them, you keep them. It was considered an honor. They considered it an honor. They regarded others as being pious, more pious than them. Ka'bu ibn Malik had been punished for 50 days and yet the Sahabi considered him more pious than himself. Especially now that Allah had accepted his repentance, this was something unique. And he came running to him bearing glad tidings. And when, so when he received them, he gladly wore them. It's mentioned in the hadith, فَلَبِسَ He wore them. Like that sahabi radiallahu anh, one of the, some of the sahaba say that the Prophet was given a gift. So he, he, wore, he wore the suit of clothing. And he came out and he looked beautiful and resplendent. So one Sahabi radiallahu anhu said, Ya Rasulullah, give me these. <laughs> so the Sahaba radiallahu anhu said, Subhanallah, someone gave a gift to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He came out wearing them resplendent in his uh, new robes, looking so beautiful. And this Sahabi says, Give me them. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would never say no. So he went back inside, changed his clothes, and brought them out and gave them. Some people approached him and said, you burdened the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So he said, I only ask them for these clothes so that they can be my shroud in my grave. They say, they did become his shroud in his grave. So they considered it an honor and there's a very beautiful story about this. Like I said, um, bearers of glad tidings would be given gifts. Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, rahmatullahi alayhi, relates a hadith, well, not a hadith, but Ibn al-Jawzi, rahmatullahi alayhi, was of the late centuries. But with this chain of narration, he relates from Imam al-Rabi' ibn Sulaiman in Kitab al-Manaqib, Kitab al-Manaqib Ahmad ibn Hanbal, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, he wrote a book about the virtues and the qualities of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, since he was a Hanbali himself, Ibn al-Jawzi. So Ibn al-Jawzi says in this Kitab al-Manaqib Ahmad ibn Hanbal, in the book of the virtues of Ahmad ibn Hanbal, with a chain of narration to Rabi' ibn Sulaiman, that Rabi' ibn Sulaiman relates that Imam Shafi'i said to me, 
But O Rabi'ah, this was in Egypt. O Rabi'ah, take this letter and go to Ahmad ibn Hanbal in Baghdad. Remember, these were the ulama of the earlier centuries. Imam Shafi'i, rahmatullahi, they passed away in 204 Hijri. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in 241 Hijri. So he was much younger, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. So Rabi' ibn Sulaiman says that Imam Shafi'i gave me a letter and said, Oh Rabi', take this letter and carry it to Baghdad. They were in Egypt. And deliver it to Ahmad ibn Hanbal. And give him my salah. So Rabi' ibn Sulaiman says, he was an imam in his own right, Imam al-Rabi' ibn Sulaiman. He says that I traveled to Egypt, uh, sorry, to Baghdad, Iraq, from Egypt. And when I arrived there, I managed to perform Salatul Fajr in the masjid with Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Meaning I met him there. And it appears that he was leading Salah, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Because he says that when he turned around from the mihrab, I approached him. He hadn't met him before. He says that uh, I arrived at the masjid, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal was in Fajr Salah. He arrived that night, but he went to the masjid for Fajr. When he turned around from the mihrab after Fajr Salah, I approached him and I said to him, Salaamu Alaikum, this is a letter from your companion and your brother from Egypt, Shafi'i. So Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal took the letter and he said, have you opened it? And looked, in, looked, looked at it, so he said, ah. Rabi ibn Sulaiman said, no. So Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal took the letter and broke the seal. And then he began reading the letter. When he read the letter, he suddenly, his eyes filled with tears. So Rabi ibn Sulaiman said to him, Ya Aba Abdullah, that was his kunya, his taktonym. O Abu Abdullah, since Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal's son was Abdullah. So he says, O oh, Abu Abdullah, Ya Aba Abdullah, O oh, Abu Abdullah, what is it? Why do you weep? Such, because he, his eyes filled with tears and he began weeping. So he said, Shafi'i writes, Imam Shafi'i was much senior to Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, because Shafi'i writes that he saw a dream in which he saw the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa And the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa said to him, Convey to Ahmad ibn Hanbal that he will be tested by Allah. So tell him to remain steadfast and Allah will elevate his rank in knowledge. So that's why he started weeping. Now imagine he's being given the news of a dream in which Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Ahmad ibn Hanbal will be tested. And yet, Rabi ibn Sulaiman said to him, Bishara, a glad tiding. A glad tiding. 
And in a way, it was like Rabi' ibn Sulaiman was saying to him, I'm the bearer of good news. Where's my gift? He didn't say it, where's my gift? But he said, Bishara. This is good news. Glad tidings, subhanAllah. Ahmad ibn Hanbal is being told that he is about to be punished and tortured and tested. Because a lot was going on at the time. So Rabi' ibn Sulaiman said to him, Bishara. Glad tidings. So Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi alayhi, in that tradition of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an, he took off his shirt and he gave it to Rabi ibn Sulaiman. And then he wrote a reply and he gave it to Rabi. Rabi ibn Sulaiman says that I took the letter back to Egypt and I delivered the letter to Imam Shafi'i rahmatullahi alayhi. Imam Shafi'i, the, these people were all of one mind. Their world is different, our world is different. Imam Shafi'i also understood that he must have given Rabi'i a gift because he bore these glad tidings to him. Rabi'i ibn Sulaiman didn't tell him that he gave me a shirt. So he gave him the letter. So Shafi'i looked at the, of reply, he read the reply. And then he said to Rabbi ibn Sulaiman, what did he give you along with this letter? Allahu Akbar. Rabbi ibn Sulaiman said he gave me his shirt. Shafi'i rahmatullahi alayhi said, he was his teacher. He was a teacher of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Shafi'i rahmatullahi alayhi said to Rabbi ibn Sulaiman, I won't alarm you in the shirt, meaning I won't alarm you by asking you for the shirt. But do this, go and dip the shirt in some water and bring the water to me. He wanted to drink the water in which the shirt of Ahmad ibn Hanbal was dipped. And he said, so that I may share this gift of glad tidings with you. Rahmatullahi alayhim ajma'een. May Allah have mercy on all of them. May Allah enable us to follow in the footsteps of these ulama and the sahaba radiyallahu anhum ajma'een. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasoolihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alkotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alkotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.